it's truly amazing the difference a single light can make. In a room of darkness, almost immediately your eyes are drawn to the solitary light. But the truth is, That as remarkable as it is that everyone can see this solitary small light in front of me. The reality is that it doesn't make enough difference to allow us to even do basic things. If we were to have the rest of this service with just this light here, it would cause some difficulties You can't really see the people around you. You can't write down anything God may say to you. If nature calls, it's a little more difficult to answer. And so while this light makes a difference, the level of the difference it makes is not really huge. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of making a difference, of impacting our world, of changing your world. I was struck by something this week as I read that passage that we've quoted every week in this series that Jesus said to his followers when he said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And I thought about the reality of what he's saying there, because in their day and time, when travelers were traveling at night, it was pitch black. I mean, we can't even get it pitch black in here because of the lights in the hallway and the sun creeping in from outside. It was pitch black for people traveling in the days of Jesus. The other day, our family, we decided to kind of do an end of the summer trip and um we went, my, my father-in-law has a place on the Tennessee River, and so we took a trip to the river and left before sun, you know, we were there all day and came back. And on the way back, we decided to, to kind of do something different for supper. And so we went off the beaten path and we went and ate at the Loveless Cafe. Uh, anybody been there? Yeah. I'd ask you to raise your hand, but I couldn't see him. It's all right. It's good, right? Amen. Biscuits. Good. So we ate at the Loveless Cafe, and when we were leaving, if you know about the Loveless Cafe, we were traveling I-40. You have to get off of I-40, and you have to go kind of in a winding road back down to Highway 100 where it intersects there. And as we were leaving, we were coming back down that winding road, and we realized quickly we were in the middle of a place that did not have streetlights. And it was dark. As we kept going closer and closer to where we knew the interstate would be, I remember the thought in my mind and the sight in my mind of when we came over a place or around a curve and right in front of us was all that comes with the interstate, the the lights and the, the stores and all that was right there. And immediately you know we've reached civilization again. On the days of Jesus, when people would travel, they would travel In complete darkness at night. With maybe only a torch to guide their way. But if there was a city. Like Jerusalem. Up on a hill. 
with the lights of the entire town burning, it was unmistakable. And it was a guidance for the people in the dark. And this week, as I've thought about the idea of changing your world, I've wondered what it would look like for us instead of us as First Baptist Goodlettsville or you and your world being a single, solitary, small, flickering candle in the darkness. What if we were a city on a hill? What would it look like for us to shine brighter, to glow, to be that destination place on the edge where people would look to and wonder and gaze in the darkness? What would it mean for us to impact our world for the cause of Christ in such a way that instead of trying to illuminate the darkness in a single solitary candle, we raged like the fullness of the lights in this building when they're fully on? And so today, I want to talk about what it means and what it looks like to shine brighter in the world to which Jesus has called you. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to talk about what it means to shine brighter for Jesus today. Here's the idea. The last couple of weeks we've talked about this concept that Christ has called us to impact the world. In fact, that passage of Scripture over in Matthew where Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one takes their lamp, he says, and hides it under a a basket. You put it out for people to see. You are the salt of the earth. So let people see your good deeds. Let them see what you're doing so they give praise and glory to your Heavenly Father. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of impacting the world around us. And then last week, we spent a little time talking about, well, what does that look like? What What is our world? What What is our sphere of influence? What is our zone? We talked about finding the people that God has brought into our lives or the people that we are spending more than an hour with a week. And that I ask you, if you were here last week, to make a list of those people in your life that you spend more than an hour with a week of good quality time. We talked about the places we are put and our workplace and the schools that we're a part of. Just in general, going through our day at the, the bank when we're doing business there, or at fast food restaurants or at restaurants in general or in stores. And then we talked about those things that God had called us to in our passions and how we can use that as a sphere of influence. Today, what I want to do is then ask the question, okay, if I've identified the people, if I've identified the places, if I've identified the passions in my life, then how do I shine in those moments? How do I do something that brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus? I'm going to give you three things today, all right? And so you write these down somewhere, put them somewhere. You can look at them later, kind of write those references down. But if you'll do these three things, it will begin to help you to brighten up as you shine for Jesus. And the first one is very simple. I'm going to ask you or tell you that if you want to shine brighter for Jesus, you need to learn to mind your manner. Now, how many of you ever grew up with a mom or dad that used to tell you, I need you to mind your manners? Let me see your hands. All right. What did that mean? 
What did that mean? It meant act right, right? When I was growing up, mom, I, I had myself and my brother, and oftentimes on Saturday, my dad, growing up for the first part of my life, uh, for the very first part of my life, was a truck driver, and then after that, he worked in a truck shop where he was always on call, and a lot of times would work seven days a week. And so a lot of, on Saturdays, uh, mom would take my brother and I out. And I was thinking about this yesterday because I was out with uh, some of our family. We were doing back-to-school shopping, right? And when I was growing up, Dyersburg, that meant you went downtown to the fancy stores, all right? Acreage was downtown, and, you know, you had all these stores. And mom would always, with my brother and I, we're getting in, we're in the car, we're getting ready to get out. She would put it in park, you know, on the steering wheel, put it in park, and she would turn around to us, and she would give us the talk, all right? Listen. We're about to go into the store. I know neither one of you are happy about going into the store, but you have to have shoes before we go back to school. When we go into this store, I expect you to act like you know who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. Anybody ever done that? Had that? Right. I, I had a little talk like that yesterday, as a matter of fact. All right. Mine just happened to be in the middle of the most crowded Walmart part of the place. All right. Mind your manners. That meant do what you're supposed to do. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was mom so concerned that we act like we ought to act? Because it reflected on her, right? She did not want to be that mom that people are walking through the shoe store. Goes, I just can't believe she lets her kids act like that. It is just unbelievable that, why, that she needs to. Do, she needs to. If she doesn't do something now, she's going to. I mean, I know you've never thought that or said that. She didn't want to be that one. Here's the thing. We need to think about the way we live because the manner in which we live is a direct, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, is a direct reflection on our Savior. And just as mom was concerned that in Acreage Shoe Store, she didn't want her boys causing a scene that would make people think less of her, when we are out representing Jesus Christ, we need to make sure we act in a manner that is befitting the Savior who has redeemed us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you've got your Bibles, you, you can turn there. If you don't, you can just kind of listen along. Paul's talking to a church that has not been acting like they ought to act. And in 1 Corinthians, what he's doing with these people, he's, he's talking to them and saying, listen, you've got to start acting right. You've got to start acting in the way you should. In another passage, in Colossians chapter 4, he tells us all, and he would say this to the Corinthians as well, that you are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. And then I, this always captures my attention. Let your speech always, say that word with me, always, always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul tells the people in Colossians, he says, listen, you've got to watch what you say. You always speak in a manner that is gracious. That's hard to do. Amen? It's hard to always be gracious and life-giving when you speak. We live in a culture of complaint and criticism and debate. 
People always are criticizing people that don't agree. People are always complaining about things that aren't happening. People are always debating. And usually our rhetoric ends up in a place where our speech is not gracious. Let me just be honest with you. Over the last few years, the rhetoric, the speech, the talk that is used by public people who claim the name of Jesus about other people is oftentimes less than gracious. At the same time, Paul is speaking to not only about our outsiders, but how we treat one another and that people outside see how we treat one another. And if we are consistently, constantly talking about each other in ways that are less than gracious, we are doing damage to the name and the reputation of the Savior which we serve. Now, we have all kinds of terms for it and ideas for it. We talk about... um, have prayer requests that end up being into times of talking about people. We do it out of love, we say, but the language doesn't befit that. The Scripture says that we are to always be gracious in our speech. Another place, Paul tells us that our attitude and our manner makes a difference. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he tells us that we are to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. Minding our own business, working with our hands, so that your daily life may be win the respect of those outside. He says, go about your business, doing what you're supposed to do, acting like you're supposed to act, saying what you're supposed to say, so that when it comes around to it, people from the outside look at you and think, I don't know if I believe they're Jesus, but man, I respect who they are. The hardest workers, the most cheerful workers, the best workers ought to be people who are followers of Jesus Christ. The most engaging people, the happiest people, the most joyful people ought to be people who are living for the glory of Jesus Christ. There ought not be anybody out there that works harder or better or with a better attitude than those of us that are followers of Jesus. Paul talking to this Corinthian church in chapter 12 has told them, listen, let me just tell you about this church. It was messed up. I mean, messed up. We're we're walking through it on Wednesday nights, just verse by verse. And we're talking about a church where they were constantly arguing about who they thought was the better teacher, where they thought they had moved past Paul, so they no longer even needed to listen to Paul. In fact, they were debating whether they would even read his letters or talk to him or have any kind of discussion with Paul because we're better than Paul. We're more spiritual than Paul. We learn more than Paul. We know more than Paul. We don't even have to listen to him anymore. And Paul writes and says, you're foolish. They were so messed up as a church, they kept talking about how great of a church they were, how they were better than everybody else. They had spiritual people that were super spiritual people, and yet they had church members suing each other in public courts and taking it before the non-believers and arguing with each other so badly that everybody in town knew that those Christians don't like each other over there. They had a man living with his stepmother, and they weren't doing a thing about it as a church. They would have the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper in their day, they would all come together and have a huge feast. And at the huge feast, they would also break the bread, and they would take the drink. And they were having the people that didn't have to work, that were wealthy. There was a real difference in wealth and not having wealth in Corinth. They would come, and they would eat, and they would eat so much, they would get drunk and fat 
on the Lord's Supper. And then those that had to work all day that could barely make it after work would get there and there would be nothing left for them. Paul looks at him and he uses this illustration of the body and he says, listen, you all have got to learn how to work together. If you're going to shine brightly into the darkness, you've got to learn how to come together and to work together and each one do your part, but do it well. And then he has at the very last of chapter 12, the last part of chapter 12, in fact, the last verse of chapter 12, in fact, the last part of the last verse of chapter 12 in verse 31. In some of your Bibles, if you're looking at them, it, it has it almost like it's part of chapter 13, but it's not there yet. He says, and now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. Now, somebody tell me what's in first Corinthians chapter 13. What's it about? Love, right? Where do you hear 1 Corinthians 13 read? The weddings, right? You get up there and you have the scripture reading and they choose a friend to come up and read the scripture or the pastor gets up and then, I mean, I do it too in the sermon that he, the little sermon that you do before you do the vows and all that. You read chapter 13 because it's a great description of love. But here's the truth. 1 Corinthians 13 was not written about a husband and a wife. It was written about how we treat each other in the church so that the outside world can understand what we believe. And he says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels with no love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Anybody remember the old gong show? Yeah, I don't either because I wasn't around, but I heard about it. It was before my time. You know, you know, the show, the premise of the show is acts would come out and perform. And if they weren't any good, they would. Hit the gong, right? And he says, listen, that resounding, terrible sounding gong is what you sound like if you're trying to do these things without love. So it doesn't matter what you say if you don't have love. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries, and I have all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. It doesn't matter what you know if you don't have love. And verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, that means I die for the cause of Christ. But have not love, I gain nothing. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you do if you're not doing it with a manner of love. You ever heard the phrase, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Anybody ever use that? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And what Paul says to the Corinthian church and what we have to understand is we live in a country, we live in a culture with how we're saying what we're saying makes a huge difference in the way people understand who Jesus is. we got to mind our manner. Do it in love. Some of you could quote the rest of chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not puffed up, it's not arrogant. It keeps no records of wrongs. It's hopeful, always perseveres, always works. Now, here's the thing I want to tell you about that. For most of us, that description of love that comes from chapter 4, I mean verse 4 to verse 7, is against our natural instincts. I mean, just take the first one. How many of you are naturally patient? Don't raise your hand because the rest of us won't like you, all right? Naturally patient. How many of you naturally just think, boy, if I could just, I mean, I really want this thing right now, but if I could wait a little longer, that would be better. 
When you go to the doctor, you think, boy, I hope they're backed up today. It doesn't boast. It doesn't make big deals about that. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep any record of wrongs. No grudges. No remember when you. No that time when. Wipes it clean. Rejoices in truth. Protects. Trusts. Hopes. Perseveres. Here's what I mean by this. We've got to learn to live in a manner of love. Well, what does that look like? Well, it means this. In your relationships with people inside this church, with your relationships with people outside this church. It doesn't matter if you're a guest here. Whatever your closest relationships are, you've got to learn to live in a manner of love. That means adding value to people. Sensing where they are and injecting into them joy and hope. Being a light of joy in the midst of darkness. You realize that I'm around believers, Christians, a lot. And there are some Christians who remain nameless that that their lives are lived like they've been sucking on lemons for 30 years. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Anybody ever sucked on a lemon? Well, it's fun, isn't it? I remember one of my favorite things we did. Eli was a, a baby and we gave him a lemon. Anybody ever done that with a baby? Isn't that just fun? It's cruel, but fun, right? Give them a lemon, and they're so excited. You're giving them big people food, you know? Been eating this mush, you know, ground up green beans. I mean, who wants that, right? And so you give them a lemon, and they put it in their mouth, and there's that first sense of wow, and then the face comes of just agony, right? It's like Luke the other day. We are at the river. They... His granddaddy had bought some Skittles. And Luke opened up the Skittles and did not realize he had opened up the sour Skittles. And when you get sour and you're expecting sweet, it's just not good. There are a lot of believers that live their lives like that, just puckered up and mad and angry and complaining and criticizing all the time. And the smallest thing sets them off and they want to go off. And I want to tell you like it is. When our manner needs to be gracious and loving Giving people the benefit of the doubt and not condemning the sinner even though we don't believe in the sin. Paul looks at him and says, if you want to know the most excellent way, it's love. That's the first one. Mind your manner. Here's the second one. Seize your moments. We've talked about this for the last few weeks, but God is going to place in your path on a daily basis, I believe, Moments and opportunities for you to impact the world you're around. Now, he's not going to put flashing lights up. There's not going to come up on your phone. Divine appointment right now. You've got to be prepared for them. I love what it says in Psalm 37, 23. It says, the steps of a good man, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, the idea is if you're following the Lord, if you're looking for opportunities, God will guide every step of your day to a place where you can have divine moments with other people. Now, here's some some tips for you. Look for interruptions. Look for schedule changes. Look for moments that things don't go like you expect them to go. In fact, in Proverbs, it tells us that men set our plans. We, we have this plan set out, but God determines our steps. 
How many of you here are planners? Like you got your, when the day starts, you got your plan set out. All right? Here's the thing. When that plan gets messed up completely, you need to ask, why in the world is this messed up completely? What's the Lord trying to do in the midst of it? The next time your schedule gets rearranged and you don't understand why, ask the Lord, what have you brought into my place? The next time you get to the doctor and what was supposed to be an hour appointment, you realize you're 45 minutes in and you haven't been called back. Ask the Lord, is there someone around me that I'm supposed to be impacting today? uh, A few months ago, um, the Lord kind of convicted me at on this point, um, a few months ago, I called to disconnect our cable service. You want something that'll bless your heart? You just call to disconnect your cable service, all right? So I called to disconnect my cable service because here's what happened: about a year and a half, two years ago, we um, we cut the cord and we were going to just uh, online stuff. And in all of doing all that, we we called and we got this. Deal on the internet if we bundled the internet with basic TV that we didn't even have the box hooked up to anymore. And this basic TV was only going to be $5, but it was going to save us 20 So I did it. Well, guess what? At the end of a year, that basic TV shot up. The savings went away. And I called to say, I want to be done with this. And I got on there, and the guy for 15, 20 hours, I don't know, was talking to me about... The bundle. I need the bundle. I want to unbundle the bundle. No, you got to have the bundle. If you unbundle the bundle, you're not going to have the same kind of thing. You need the bundle. I don't need the bundle. I just need one of the bundle. Why can that not be cheaper than two of the bundle or three of the bundle? I don't want the bundle. You feel like you're just in circles, right? And in the midst of that, I, you know, I, you know, I admit this as your pastor. I got a little um, perturbed with the person on the other end of the line. And I just got reminded of something by the Lord. And, you know, there are times when the Lord reminds you of something. You just want to go, Lord, could we just wait for a few minutes? Let me say what I need to say and then get done. And it was just this little simple thing where the Lord said, you do remember that the email you gave him was pastor at fbcgoodlitzville.com. And that is where he is referencing all of this. And in that moment, I kept on yelling at him. No, that's not what happened. You just, let me think about it. Oftentimes, I think the most disappointing thing for me to see in my life We all know the struggles we go through. All of us have sins that we struggle with. All of us have difficulties we struggle with. I have areas of my life I struggle with greatly. But I think the most disappointing thing to me is if God would reveal to me all of those moments that I miss on a daily basis to impact the people around me for him. Several of you students are going back to school this week. Tomorrow for some of you. You're going to have opportunities tomorrow as you sit next to people that God has placed you in a class next to you that your first thought is, I can't believe I'm in class with them. And yet God is going to want to use it for his glory. Begin to ask the Lord tomorrow as you sit in those seats, who around me is God calling me to impact this year? 
Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to sit next to people you've sat next to for years. You're going to work next to people you've worked next to for years. But when you walk out the door tomorrow, say, Lord, show me an opportunity today to impact them for you. You've got to mind your manner. You've got to seize your moment. And the last thing is you've got to know your message. This is the last thing we're going to talk about today. And we're actually going to spend the message two weeks from now really focused on this. Next week's going to be a great week. You want to be here. We're going to hear a report from our L.A. mission trip and Centrifuge and Centrikid. A reminder of what happened in VBS. Just a great week to talk about all that God has done this summer. Um, our new director of children's ministry and church communications, Ellie Doom, will be here as a part of that. And we're excited about all of that. So don't miss next week. And in two weeks, we're going to talk specifically about this idea of knowing your message. But I just want to give you a tidbit of it before we go today. There's a passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 that says that we are always to be ready. In fact, it says, honor Christ as holy. And the way you do that is to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that is found within you. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Can I tell you something? If you live your life at work and at school and in social settings and on the baseball field and in athletic events and in social gatherings and around your friend, if you live a life where you are speaking graciously at all times and your manner is a manner of love at all times and your joy and your hope comes from the Lord at all times, at some point people around you are going to ask you, how in the world are you living like that? How are you making it through that difficult circumstance with joy in your heart? How in the world are you never able to say anything bad about anybody? How are you able to live in a way that gives glory to God like that? What, what are you, what's in it? What's the secret? What's behind it? And when they ask that question, you've got to have a defense ready. Because the, I don't, I don't, it doesn't work, all right? Here it is. You need to be able to tell your story about how you came to Jesus in three minutes or less. Know your message. It's a simple message. In fact, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul writing to this same church we talked about before says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it tells us what our message is. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. That means he bought us back. That means he canceled our sin. That means he took away what we couldn't do ourselves. And to do that, he did that for us in order that we might tell others about it. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And so it's real simple. I mean, I can tell my story in three minutes or less. I was born in a Christian home. Mom and dad went to church. Took me to church before I was born and every Sunday after. When I was about nine years old, though, I began to get this sense that just going to church and being in church and knowing about Jesus wasn't near enough. I specifically remember being in a Sunday school class when I was nine years old and my teacher's name was Miss Dorothy Gaines. And Miss Dorothy Gaines would ask us every week, how many of you in here have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And every week there seemed to be a new hand that would go up and my hand was not one of those hands. And I just remember thinking about it and praying about it. And there was this heaviness and I didn't understand that at nine, but there was just this something that I had to get right. And I remember sitting in the floor of my living room one night when I was nine years old and my grandmother 
asking me, Lyle, is it time for you to become a Christian? And saying, Granny, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I don't know. And going to church service and church service after church service. When the preacher would get to the end and he would have us all, anybody wanted to come down front. Every time I did everything I could not to move a muscle. And one Sunday, sitting in the pew on what would be the left-hand side from the stage in First Baptist Church in Irishburg, Tennessee, I remember just saying, Jesus, I realize that I am a sinner and that my only hope is in you. And I accept the forgiveness of my sins that you paid for on the cross. It hadn't been easy. And there have been moments of growth and there have been moments of decline. But I can tell you this. To this day, it is the best decision I have ever made. My life has never been the same and it will never be the same. Because I place my trust in Him. And that's the reason for the hope I have within. What's your story? Some of you might have to say the honest assessment is, the honest answer is, I don't have one. I don't remember that. I don't remember doing anything like that. I don't remember a moment like that. And I'm not asking for a date and a time. I don't think you have to have it time stamped. But you need to remember the moment. When Christ changed your life forever. If we're going to impact the world around us, we've got to learn to mind our manner, to seize those moments But if we don't share the message, then it doesn't matter how much love and grace we pour into the world if we're not telling people it's because of Jesus. So my question for you this week is this. When it comes to those 10, 12, 8, 14 people that you spend that amount of time with on a regular basis, when it comes to the places where you find yourself often, the restaurants you eat in, the places you go to work, the ball fields where you are, when it comes to the passions of your heart, the things that God has laid on your heart that you are to do and to act on, how are you this week going to mind your manner and seize your opportunity and share your message? Many of you need to go home this afternoon. You need to write down your message, your story, your three minutes testimony of what happened when you accepted Christ. You need to practice with your spouse. For some of you, that may be the first time you and your spouse really even talk about that. For some of you, you know it. Your spouse could tell your story. It's okay. Still share it. And begin to ask the question, how does God intend for me to change my world? Would you bow with me and pray this morning?